forever. Dog. There was a couple of little secrets, and one was just good vibes. Create a good vibe with whoever the assistant was who was outside and, and be friendly to everybody. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from Speechless, The Big Bang Theory, or one episode of Joan of Arcadia, where I played Joan's geometry teacher. Our guest this episode is Xander Berkeley. Where to start with Xander? Terminator 2, Mommy Dearest, Sid and Nancy, 24, Year 1. Oh, there's a lot of Chekhov talk in this episode. You're really going to dig it. Please welcome Xander Berkeley. Xander, I'm so glad this is is working out. We we had some scheduling issues. You missed a podcast recording session because you were hanging out with Christopher McDonald. How do you and Christopher McDonald know each other? Well, uh, we both have had homes up in Lake Arrowhead since the 80s. Okay. We we both got our second homes first. <laughs> And uh, we would run into each other there as well as at any uh, given audition where they needed a somewhat uh, charming bad guy. Sure. You know, we've really been conspiring for a couple of years on a show that could be called just bad guys. You guys have carved out an an impressive uh, niche of um, uh, sociopaths with gorgeous eyes. Yeah, well, you know, it's it had to fall to some group. And so it fell to us. Um, he was always one of those guys that would always be so fun to run into at an audition. I know you know and have the same experience of the ones that would send out the bad vibes, like they're going to psych you out, especially when you're up for psychos. Everybody's trying to out-psycho each other. <laughs> <laughs> you just look around the room and go, okay, easy does it. Save it for when you go inside right now. I'm not impressed. Um, uh, but Chris was always one of those guys that was just, you know, you'll get one, I'll get one, we'll, we'll see on the next one, and we'll, we'll never get to work together because of that. Um, but we've been hanging out for years. Do you feel like it's always been that way where there's a sense of, like, you've got your regular guys who you see at all the auditions, and there's a sense of, like, hey, if it's not me, I hope it's you. Best of luck, everybody. I'm going to go beat traffic, you know. It, or was was it a little more cutthroat earlier on? I don't know. I I was brought out uh, by an agent that um, brought another guy out around the same time. Brought out from New York. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I was brought out. That sounds like cattle from from the great Midwest. <laughs> it should sound like cattle. Yeah. Well, for the cattle calls, but uh, we we had already sort of gotten through the cattle calls to get agents um, that wanted to bring us out, and uh, so there there was another guy that. Uh, Kind of felt there's a lot of crossover, and we just I think we established it kind of early on because in New York there'd be thousands of people lined up, you know, being humiliated outside a, a, a dangerous neighborhood to get into a shitbox theater to audition for. So there was really, I, I, I think that was I don't know if I even you, you couldn't see see anybody's eyes. You were just huddling in the cold, waiting to go in, but you know. And then you'd overhear, you'd, you'd hear the actors like doing the, the speech or whatever the scene was that you'd prepared, just like with the terrible acoustics, just bellowing through. And like, you know, maybe there'd be a few looks once you were in the inner sanctum about to go in, out of the cold, you know, defrosting. And you, you know, try and, you know, smother laughter because you know, people, the next people behind you would be laughing, hearing how you did it. 
Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, that having a guy named Jack Blessing, who I'm afraid we lost uh, way too early a few years ago, um, you know, he always had diabetes. He had some difficulties with health, and and he switched from acting into the voice into the the uh, the realm of looping, and was in a loop group and just made a, a a killing doing that, and would bring me in to do specialty accents for a loop group, and I really was so fascinated by that realm. But anyway, Jack was somebody who just was a a beautiful soul, and so we were always excited to see each other at an audition and. And we kind of, I remember early on in the cutthroat phase, just sort of feeling like there was a couple of little secrets and one was just good vibes, create a good vibe with whoever the assistant was who was outside and, and be friendly to everybody and inside and, and uh, not, not lose that because that good karma and wishing others well and, and being nice to everybody, you know, all even apart from that whole notion of be be nice to the little guys on the way up because they're going to be the big guys on your way down right theory which i heard a few times it just how do you want to spend your life do you want to be like mean and in the trenches do you want to be happy having fun doing what you do and even auditions before we burn out um having had too many we're like hey it's an opportunity to hone my craft go in and do a little show for the people in a nice office. This is my chance to act this week. Yeah. No, that's it. it I, I maintain that attitude for a long time. I will still do the, uh, now that I'm remote, for things that I really care about. Um, but there's also a point at which, you know, you've got a couple of hundred, few th- hundred things they could look at. Yeah. You know, I think about early on the jobs that uh, it was a lot of times British directors who would just sit and have a conversation with you, discussing the story, discussing the character, how it helped the story move forward, and that they could tell by the way you thought and talked about the character what you would do. And they saw a few things that you had done in the past, and that was enough. And you, you had a chance to see whether you had chemistry and whether you wanted to work with them and they wanted to work with you and... And then it was, you know, it just that I, I, I love that too. I wasn't going to start here, but since you've brought up waiting in long lines in shitty neighborhoods and British directors, that leads me seamlessly to where I first discovered you, which was in Sid and Nancy, Alex Cox's film from 1986, um, which was honestly the first time uh, I remember picking you out of, a, of an ensemble and being like, oh, this guy's great. And you've got an amazing moment where you're, you're playing one of the, the junkies that befriends Sid and Nancy. Uh, the character's name is hysterically Bowery Snacks. Um, and you you have an amazing, amazingly funny moment. As the film gets more and more depressing, you have one incredible funny moment where you're trying to find some money that is clearly never going to be found. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this bit, but it's hilarious. But the... So is that how that went down? Because you've worked with Alex Cox a few times. Is that how that went down with him? Did I... Did I leave a lot of money around here? I left a lot of money somewhere. A, a classic junkie drug dealer line of like, yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> I wasn't going to pimp you into doing it. I, I mean, I basically, I would never ask, you know, De Niro to say you talking to me. I would never ask you to do your, your junkie chunk from, uh, from Sid and Nancy, but I love it so much. <laughs> well, to be picked out of an ensemble like that is a, tr- a tremendous honor. Thank you. Uh, you know, that was Gary's first movie. I know. And we 
we all kind of just clicked and fell in uh, to that mode. Um, and it was really fun. And, and they brought such gravitas to the characters. It wasn't on the page in the original script that because they'd shot it, the luxury of shooting in chronological sequence. They'd started in London, they'd gone to Paris, they'd come to New York, and eventually we'd end up in LA. Right. Remember when independent movies had budgets? Yes, I know. I was, I, I, when I, I watched it, I watched it a couple of years ago and I was leaning forward in my chair like, they're actually in LA. But I, they were actually in Paris earlier. They are actually in Los Angeles. Because, you know, we can, we've seen the tricks now and we can always. Well, we recreated the, the, uh, uh, the Chelsea Hotel in in uh, in Los Angeles so meticulously, but we did the exteriors. And but the exteriors are still are still the Chelsea Hotel. I I went to high school in Chelsea. I that's five blocks from where I went to high school. I I um it is absolutely one hundred percent the Bojangles at the corner. May it rest is you know that that's absolutely uh, the Chelsea Hotel. Did you get that gig the way you were just discussing? Were you able to just sit with Alex and talk for a little bit? No, that was, they were already in London when they cast my part. And, um, you know, Vicki Thomas, the casting director. Uh huh. You must know her. I just love her dearly. Um, I used to do my own makeup because I'm a makeup artist, painter, and stuff. Uh-huh. And I'd done makeup on stage. I'd all, I've been hired to do special effects makeup when I was very young in New York before coming out to LA. And so I, I, I saw this character as being a little bit different from myself. And, and I, I had studied some characters while living in New York that he was like. And so I, I took the time with my German kit to break the capillaries and yellow the teeth and put soap in my hair to make it look dirty, ironically. And, and uh, went and got a, a beer across the street at the little bodega across the street and a pack of cigarettes. And this is when you could walk into an office in West Washington Boulevard um, with a cigarette. And I, I let the cigarette go in my eyes right before walking in and took one sip of the beer. And I just used it to gesture with both hands when I went in, like this was just who I was. You brought a beer to an audition. Yeah. Hero. It was a warm beer, though. It was nasty. But anyway, it was perfect. Well, the character would have had a warm beer. The character hasn't paid his electric bill. His fridge doesn't work. And I was using the cigarette just to gesture. And so I, I walked up the stairs, went in, and there was no waiting. She was waiting for me. And, and I walked in and I sat down and, and she said, well, Xander, nice, nice to meet you. And she looked down at my resume picture. You look so different. And I, and I was like, oh, it caught me. And I went, ah, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's so nice to be able to go to an audition when I get all spruced up and shit. <laughs> and so I stayed in that mode and I did the scenes and I improvised and I was cast um, from afar and, and showed up on set um, before, right after, you know, when you arrive, they bring you to set before you do your costume fitting and, and all that. And, and um, they were shooting something outside in New York and I, I walked up and I met Alex for the first time and he said, oh, you're so clean. I thought we had miraculously discovered a junkie who could act naturally in front of a camera. Oh, well, and walked away. <laughs> and, and then he, well, nobody adding us. Well, I, I, I incorporated some of your ad libs immediately into the script. So I couldn't with clear conscience, not have cast you after that, I suppose. And walked away. And it's like, Oh, he's so disappointed that I'm not a junkie and that I'm not filthy and disgusting. I, I'll go right back to the hotel now and get back in my mode because clearly that's what's expected of me and I've 
I've let the fourth wall down <laughs> in a way that I wasn't meant to. And, and oddly, having come from New York and knowing, you know, just being able to get pot for the crew and stuff like that as the, in the mode of the junkie drug dealer and being the trickster and bringing a little humor because they started to like a little friction had started to establish at this point between various characters, director and lead actor. Um, no, no names, but go ahead. <laughs> no names. Um, but it was as that character, as this jester junkie uh, archetype, I was able to sort of charm them into a good mood and getting excited about the scenes that we had to shoot. And what we ended up doing was because the conflict was that they wanted to take this more seriously than it was originally being taken, Gary and Chloe, and because they had given so much weight to these characters that the, the strain was buckling under the structure. Uh, the structure was buckling under the strain of, of their depth relative to the sort of lightweightness of the, of the, the film as originally conceived. And um, so I, I, I sort of like was able to be this conduit for them to hit it off again and us to get excited. So we'll look, what do we need? We're shooting it in chronological sequence. What do we need to have happen at the end for sure? And, and how can we take what, what is required to make the gears shift from here to there? And just, can we improvise? Can we just do a little bit of, of uh, you know, just playing around with it to see if you want to hear some other options to see. And we ended up doing that for the whole, all those final sequences in the Chelsea Hotel. And Alex took meticulous notes and we would get, see our improvisation incorporated with the, um, the, uh, the lines and the, and the story points that needed to be hit in, the, in little shrinky pages, yeah. in the pages the next day for work. And it was amazing. And we, just to, to sort of get into that mode. And, and Roger Deakins, who just won the Best Cinematographer the same year Gary finally got his Best Actor. They both got their first finally two years ago. And um, it was so brilliant just having his eye on it and watching the scenes as we were improvising. He knew that they wanted to like cut my head off just to have this urchin be sort of moving through their apartment, touching things and looking if there was any coke left on this surface or, you know, this, uh, and, and, and the figuring out of chain smoking and, and how to go and come back. And, and so they had a chance to sleep on it the night before. And it just, to me, that, that was some magical filmmaking experiences in those scenes because we were all listening and, and interacting based on the characters, based on the story as it had grown. And it, it made the film a much better film. Oh, it's a great piece of work. I, I go back to it every couple of years. And then Criterion finally put out a gorgeous edition uh, a couple of years ago, a really crisp looking Blu-ray that is um, a prized possession. We'll back up a little bit. I want to talk about a film that is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. I speak, of course, of Mommy Dearest. Well, how did um, that become the first time you saw me in film and recognized me amidst the ensemble? Well, it was a very small part. <laughs> you have two, uh, there, I think there's probably two camps to Xander Berkeley fandom, and there's the uh, there's the the straight punk rock kids, which, hi, how are you? That's where I get, and then there's your uh, uh, fan base who would have discovered you through Mommy Dearest. I've seen it a couple of times, even before I knew you personally. Um but watching it again recently, it's a really interesting piece of work. I think it gets unfairly dismissed as sort of just this camp thing that, you know, this camp trifle. But it's 
It's from 1981. I'm assuming you shot it in 80, thereabouts. And it's got this old-fashioned patina to it. It's almost as if it's a film from the studio system that Joan Crawford inhabited in the way it's framed, the way they use dissolves, the way they use music. It's like a Douglas Sirk movie, and it's like the 70s never happened. Yeah. Well, in a lot of cases, they use people from that time. I know they used Joan's hair and makeup. I know they used a lot of uh, crew people that had worked with Joan. Do you have any scenes with Faye? I was supposed to. Okay. Not with Faye herself. Okay. Faye as Joan dead in the coffin. And I I had a nervous breakdown scene, and that was in the script. And I auditioned with that. And for five months, I anticipated and looked forward to my screen debut, Nervous Breakdown. Wait till they see me now. Um, (laughs) Wait till they see me break down now. (laughs) And... You know, I had the chops and I was ready to do this. Uh, they, they, it was one of those rare times where <clears throat> my very first movie was where they handed me the script and it just happened to be my 24th birthday and said, happy birthday. Um, and then I, I, I checked in a three-month interval maybe, <clears throat> thinking, wow, this is going on a while. When are they going to get to my stuff? Just to see if we were still on the same page. And yes, the director was, it was all mm, marvelous. Just do what you did that day. Um, we did the lawyer's office first, the very right. last thing. And we go the, the next day or so. Um, and Diana and I had a nice connection just right off the bat. It's Diana Scarwood who played Christina. Yeah, she's just amazing. And, and we huddled and felt like the little orphan adopted, abused children just instantly. Um, and we waited a long time on one set and moved to another set to the funeral home and just drenched in, I was sat in a room that was the antechamber to where the coffin was. And it was just filled with flowers. And, and uh, you know, this was the beauty of being on a film set. You know, you had an actual funeral home and graves around and, and you're just, I didn't know from the theater, I show, I, I would show up an hour early to work obsessively on makeup, but never more than that. And seven hours go by and after five months of waiting to shoot this scene. And then uh, the AD finally comes and I'm holding, shaking with all this replete available emotion. And uh, the, so uh, Frank's going to come over and, and uh, touch base with you and, because we're getting, you're, you're, seeing, you're up next. And, uh, oh, oh my God. Okay, great. Finally, thank God. Um, and then he, he, Frank comes over and he goes, uh, okay, so Diana's going to come out and you two are going to greet each other from behind that curtain over there. And, and then you're going to, you haven't seen each other in, uh, let's say, a couple, maybe a couple of years. Right? So, But uh, it's not a place where we're going to be chatting because of the situation. And then and you'll just exit. And, and I go, oh, oh uh, okay, when, when do I go? I, I presume the coffin is behind that curtain. Um, when, when do I go in there? And he goes, oh, no, that's a scrub. No, we cut that months ago. No, didn't you? Know? No, 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 no. No, we don't know that Christopher actually did uh, go in and, and be the cop. So it's just to be the two of you. And remember, everybody, no acting as he prances off. And I, a scrub? A scrub? What's a scrub? The five months I waited to do my nerve break to the screen, baby. So the, I did volunteers right after that. And Tom Hanks, apparently, I've been told, would go on would do these talks at a certain point about the brutality of the film industry. And he used that story just to, even when you get the break, they will try to break you. Right. And uh, my father referred to it as like being uh, 
gang raped by the Hells Angels and then run over by a Mack truck, a scrub. <laughs> your wait, your father referred to it as that? Yeah. Was your father in the business? No, he was a he was an art director, but he understood. He loved film mm. and uh, backed me all the way. When did you discover that this was something you could not that you wanted to, but that you could do for a living? Well, I'll segue directly from my father, uh, who in, in the grew up in the early seventies. You know, growing up and and PBS had uh, a series of ch- uh, on Channel Thirteen all the great film, the foreign filmmakers and and filmmakers of the sixties, but like Fellini and Truffaut and Kurosawa and Bergman and all of these were showing up on a Saturday night um, when I was in high school and and I my mother would just be getting a little tired when they would start to come and so I'd pop down the stairs my father waved me in and so I was introduced to the cinema by my father and. And I was already doing plays and in the theater, and he was he was in support of that. He'd got me my first makeup kit when he saw me using burnt cork and ketchup to do fight sequences out by the street to, to freak cars out. Um, <laughs> so here, I think you need to upgrade. Um, so he he was always supportive of me as an artist in general. And but when he, he, but he wasn't he didn't suffer fools and he didn't throw away compliments uh, unless they were earned. And and I did. Malvolio and Twelfth Night when I was in college and he came up with my mom and, and uh, saw it and just had my first beer with him at the bar at the Lord Jeff in Amherst. Hampshire College the play had been uh, at Mount Holyoke because you could take classes or do plays at Mount Holyoke, Smith, Amherst, UMass or Hampshire. And I okay. took advantage of that in my first two years and and he, he said, uh, just very broke it down, look what I saw tonight and he listed the different qualities that he saw, uh, abilities and uh, raw materials. And he says, and I, I, I don't know what you want to do with this, but I can't imagine if this is what you want to pursue that anybody would need any more than what I saw tonight. Wow. Um, and, and so if you want to stay here and get a degree, or if you want to go to London and study there, or go to New York and study there, I, I, I back you 100%. And that that was the only degree I ever needed. And to me, that, that's the thing, because I, I know a lot of friends that didn't have that kind of parental support, especially from a father who, you know, could, that's no way for a man to make a living. That's a wonderful story. What were you major? Were you majoring in theater? Yeah, I was. And I, I would have at Hampshire. I got to do basically my everything that I was required for me to graduate in my in my division. But I would have had to go back and do math and sciences. Um, in order to get the degree. Right. At, at that point, I, I just needed to get in it. Yeah. I couldn't be away from it another second, but I did discipline myself to study in New York um, with a whole bunch of people privately and at HB Studios in general. Oh, you studied at HB? With who? With, well, wait, with Uda? Uh, no, I didn't I didn't study with Uda. I studied with Stephen Strimpel, who was a great person for me. I've heard the name. And... Uh, and then I just studied, I took dance and, and voice, and, and I, but I studied primarily with um, a woman that taught private classes from, she taught at RADA for 10 years. Her name is uh, Ada Mather Brown, and she was a battle axe and a, a brute, but brilliant. <laughs> and Joanna Merlin uh, for the more uh, Michael Chekhov of it all, because she had just been with him in the Moscow Arts Theater and right. casting director, but she taught a great, uh, a class that again you had to audition for, and those were my two private classes, and and I studied just 
constantly for two years and before doing a play and, and uh, so that it was to me the equivalent of a degree. And then uh, I started doing plays and, and was swept out uh, shortly thereafter. But I did improv companies and a whole bunch of different things in New York. And I'll always be grateful for the time I put in there. So this is what, mid seventies, New York? Yeah. Mid to late. Mid to late seventies. What, what kind of improv was going on in, uh, in the city at that time? Well, Chris Elliott and I uh, were in a little uh, company. No shit. Yeah. We, we do weird gigs all over town. And in Brooklyn, we take the subway out and the L train, like, where the hell are we? It was before Brooklyn had its renaissance. Um, right. And we do nightclubs, like where there'd be like three people doing singing feelings. <laughs> not having gotten the memo that the other guy was going to be singing it too. <laughs> and then we would do our little comedy act. And we did a lot of impersonations and we we worked together a lot. I don't say you don't get the credit for having the comedy chops you have, but um, I went ahead and just said it anyway. Um, yeah, I, I know. I was brought out to do sitcoms and I was kind of afraid that I would just end up with a Joker hat on. I wouldn't be taken seriously. And I'd put in all this time to be a serious actor. But that can be limiting in the other direction. Well, as it was, as it was, because once I took on, I wanted to just, as soon as I did Mommy Dearest, I was traumatized by that experience. And I just wanted to immediately, having been anointed to be in a big Paramount movie, meant I immediately the next week could get cast in television. And I told them I just wanted to focus. I said, there's a different bad guy on every episode of television every week. Yeah. I really want to see how much I can, what I can get away with, different accents, different physicalities, different how, how far I can go. Because that's, that was sort of my aim was to be a, the, the theaters, the biggest joy in, in rep theater and theater for me in general was to have an audience that had seen me in something previously refuse to believe that that was me having seen me in the thing they saw, saw me in that night. And I kind of wanted that in film. So right. immediately with the idea of the bad guy thing is I thought, you know, already I knew that there was a reluctance, a wise reluctance, Hollywood always being progressive, to just reinforce the stereotype of the the, the, the Latin American or the black guy as the villain. And so they were, you know, the receding hairline and the, and the intense blue eyes. I thought I had a little, you know, the, you referenced McDonald too, the, the, the blue-eyed bad guys that you could, if you could, if you had chops and you could manipulate your energy in the way you're, you're, you communicated through your eyes you could look like you were crazy and or especially if you did make up and walked in with beer and a cigarette <laughs> and on those occasions where it, they were all different german terrorists whatever it was <laughs> and i treated this as my film school where i was getting paid in the beginning and i didn't realize that because they had told me in hollywood you got to walk in you got to show them from the minute you walk in i would show them that character the minute i walked into the room so that they didn't have to make a a division between me and that they could be put at ease knowing there's that guy that they're waiting for. An actual German terrorist just walked in for the call and killed it. And I mean, he's a natural for it. No acting required. And then the kind of buzz gets out that he's, he's fucking scary. All right. That was the last, but suddenly where I was all set to, and I was a little like, you know, for all sorts of things, I, I was set up to get, series that were comedic and I, I would either sabotage it at the last minute by making it too intense and real or something so that I, cause I wanted to be taken seriously. And I, I just thought that that would 
get me on a frivolous foot. And that was that was right before Tom Hanks and Robin Williams and all these other people got all the, the great roles that they did in Bruce Willis for doing comedies. Right. Uh, I was fucking wrong. But I I, I I was always had an approach avoidance to fame and flying under the radar was strangely attractive to me from the moment ago. But recently, within the past 10 years or so, I, I had, um, and I just watched it with my son uh, a couple months ago before we even started booking guests for this podcast. I watched Year One, which might have been the last Harold Ramis movie. It was one of his last. And and then you you pop up. I did not expect to see you in it. You uh, as uh, an evil king. And it's awesome and so exciting to, to see you do not just comedy, but kind of broad comedy with, you know, the guy who directed Caddyshack um, uh, in there. And... Was that a complete breath of fresh air? I mean, I know the film is what it is, and it didn't do super well, but it, was it a total breath of fresh air? It looked like it was incredibly fun to to work on. It, I can usually tell when, like... Oh, my God. Yeah. So fun. And, you know, like, the very first... Uh, I think they, he cast me off a of videotape, and um, I wore a Thracian beard to the audition. Uh, I glued it on, um, and... I forget whether I, I had a wig or whatever, but I, I remember I didn't I didn't wear the crown. Okay, <laughs> I, I went for it. Yeah, and I remember running across Santa Monica. Jeannie McCarthy was casting him. Yeah, my Thracian beard flopping. In the wind. <laughs> oh my god! I know that office. I can completely picture that intersection. Yes, it's mostly there's. It's like the only casting agency around there. It's mostly just like uh, you know s- small residences and like strip malls. And I love like you know, King Herod jogging across Santa yeah. Monica. So I had a reputation for like I kind of got to bring it, and, and I would at least entertain Jeannie uh, with my Thracian beard glued on meticulously. So that did you grow that Thracian beard for this audition? It's so long, um, <laughs> and <laughs> the waves. And uh, I, I think Harold was charmed by that and uh, whatever else about my performance, which I was certainly, I, I had the classical training to, to play the King of Sodom um, and I hadn't gotten to show it. So it was fun to do it. And, uh, but when I showed up on set there, you know, first of all, I, I wasn't wearing the Thracian beard. He wasn't disappointed. Um, <laughs> and, but he, he was at the, at uh, video village and Jack, Black and Michael Sarah were doing a scene and they had already shot, they'd gotten the dialogue as written and they were just completely going off and improvising. And, and, and Harold smiled up and looked at me and goes, yeah, we've got the scene already, but this is good. This, endorphins are good for comedy. <laughs> I'm writing that down. That's my favorite thing I've heard today. Uh, endorphins are good for comedy. They are. Yeah. I've, I've heard from people who worked on that, that it was, you know, get it as written and then we're going to do a few fun runs and and that spontaneity comes through in the movie and the cast is insane there's jack there's michael there's oliver platt uh shows up ramus himself shows up in it um i always love watching ramus act i always found him just an endearing screen presence he is so great i miss him so much and i'm so sorry i'm so glad i got to work on a film with him i'm so sorry that was his last because he had so much more to offer he's just a great human being (laughs) 
Hey everybody, Tim Heidecker here with huge news. Office Hours Live recorded another episode live. It was one of our great ones with the great Rory Scovel, who's got a new special out on MAX. Oh, yeah. And the Trinity's here. DJ Doug Pound. Yes, hello. And Victor Berger the Fourth. Hi, hi, hi. Can't we, wait for the fifth. We enjoy the heck out of doing the show, and so will you. If you find us on the podcast app of your choice, now. We actually met sort of doing Chekhov. Um, uh, we, we, at a, at a friend's house, uh, we have this wonderful friend, Jessica Queller, who's a, a TV writer, um, who, who would host these, um, gloriously pretentious salons in her living room where she'd get a bunch of people together to, to read, uh, a play. And we did, uh, Three Sisters together. Yeah. And we read several, you were in a couple of those, weren't you? Cause we did a, she did a whole Chekhov series. Yeah, I did. I did. I did three sisters and seagull over there. Yeah, we did the seagull too. You did. I loved what you did in the seagull. And, and you know what was fun about it is we were having a romp, a goof, but she got great actors together. You know, New York connected a lot of naked angels sort of connectivity, and a, a big spread in the other room, and you know, a bit of wine with Chekhov. I think you can't really go wrong, can you? Oh, bliss. It was absolute bliss. I had such a great time. She was, she had these very ambitious uh, plans to do uh, Angels in America over two weekends. And then she got really busy on Supergirl as one does. This is LA. But what is it about, because Chekhov keeps coming up. What is it about, about him that, that, because you crush it. I remember what, I think in the Seagull, I think you did Trigorin and, you know, it's such a great part anyway. And you made such a meal of it with script in hand in a living room, you're clearly drawn to it. You're clearly really good at it. What is it about him that that speaks to Xander? Well, I don't know. I, start, I, I had I had classical training from my teen years, and uh, I, I just there's something about any opportunity to do a period film. I always have. There's something about the, my initial attraction to acting was metamorphosis, transformation, but also time travel. And mm. and and travel through you know different cultures and different parts of the world, and that's why I always worked obsessively on different accents, period accents, and foreign accents for anything I was conceivably castable as, because I really wanted to learn about the world and I wanted to feel like I was living in another time in another place. And uh, to me, whether it was his plays or I remember when I was living at one period and I was time away early on uh, to get away from bad TV in the eighties and get mm -hmm. my mojo back just as far as inspiration to act. And I went and lived in Europe for what I was thought was just going to be a few months and turned out to be almost a year. Um, and, and up in going with um, another actor friend and two uh, very well-educated Scottish guys that were, we all become pals and we decided we want to go up into the Outer Hebrides to see Kalanesh and, and other standing stone circles up there. And, and uh, we brought uh, into this little cottage that we, where we were staying not far from Kalanesh. And this is above the tree line, the civilization line, everything. And, and we had a, um, just a, a copy of Chekhov's short stories and a very good uh, scotch whiskey. And, uh, <laughs> and we're just passing it around. And again, that somehow 
the little the magical serum of alcohol is just if you don't have enough to where you're going to slur words or have any trouble articulating or staying with the story if it just shoehorns you into the imagining that you are the story being told and you've got and and people that were educated and that went to St Andrews Academy they reading out loud as part of their education and so even though they weren't actors they had these beautifully trained classical voices. And uh, William Converse Roberts was, was, I don't know if you ever knew him, but he's a great actor, got hit horribly with MS a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And but, uh, just a fabulous guy and a seeker and a great actor. Um, and uh, the four of us just reading that by a fire, you know, in the middle of nowhere, just made me, for the rest of my life, I wanted to be reading Chekhov with a group of people that I, I love to be around. And so when Jessica offered that, I just like, yeah, because it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's like Shakespeare or more contemporary writer Pinter. You bring in them in the moment, you bring yourself in the moment and with an audience, you, you can be doing uh, by taking the vibe and the energy of the crowd and what they, the play they want to see and mm. combining it with yourself and the state you're in, in this moment with your other players, you can do a tragedy one night and a comedy the next with the same exact play. Yeah. Improv is to be one of the, the best preparations for film acting. Agreed. Because you have to listen and you have to be in the moment and be tuned in. And instead of just finding your best angle and, <laughs> and doing what you practiced in the mirror. Um, but to blow it out each time, like it's never, you've never said those words before. And in each take, and and yet have the technical ability to make it so that in the editing room they could, it'll all cut together, but that everything is choices that you're giving the director and the editor different options. You're not just continuing to try and get that 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 one idea that you had stuck in your head that you're going to bring, and you can see that look in an actor's eye that when you're acting with somebody that you know you're doing it this and they're going to do it exactly the same, and you can set yourself on fire for this take. They have their read, yeah. <laughs> that's why I love working with improvisers because they're so in the moment and God, going back to Gary Oldman, he's, he's like, he's in every moment in the moment and, and great actors. They just are. Michaelis Kokianis, who directed the cherry orchard we did over mm-hmm. there in Bulgaria had directed Zorba the Greek and Iphigenia at Aulis and Electra and all these great. Oh God, I've actually seen that Iphigenia and it's, it's insane. It's beautiful to look at. Yeah. I mean, I remember seeing it when it came out, just being brutalized by it. And, uh, but you know, Alan Bates was in our production and Charlotte Rampling and, and they, you know, Alan had done uh, Zorba with him. So and he was going along with the, it was so funny because Kokianis was so old school maestro and he, he had us do a table read and he gave us line readings from day one, like what, how he wanted, how he heard it in his head. It was like, Oh wow. He was orchestrating this thing. And, uh, and, but Alan was going along with it and Charlotte was good. So we didn't, so the little group of us, our little crowd, Melanie and Tushka and, and Andrew and, and uh, Jerry, uh, Gerard Butler, everybody knows him from the various uh, sort of heroic productions that he's done since. Um, but you know, back then it was like his second film and he's this heavy Scottish accent trying to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And he, he was just so funny because his impression was like, 
it's incredible what, listening to him do all these lines. It's like it's perfect. Like you can see why he's doing it because that's just he's really got his. Except with me, it's completely fucking arsed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could listen to Scottish people curse for if there was like just a, a, a channel where it was just Scottish people cursing. I would watch that. I just have it on in the background all day. Let's talk about Twenty Four for a moment. First off, on a very practical level, he starts shooting Twenty Four summer of two thousand and one. Am I correct? Yeah. How many of those do you have in the can before 9-11 happens and suddenly you're the most relevant show? The pilot. That's it? Just the pilot? And we were shooting the first episode, I think, when uh, when it hit. Oh, my God. And suddenly they had to, like, how are we going to reshoot the pilot? We have planes crashing and terrorists and this is too close. Yeah. They did have to rethink it. But, yeah, suddenly it became the, the zeitgeist phenomenon. Just going back, I'm sorry, I went off too long on the thing, but the the, the Kakianis about Chekhov uh, and being prescient in a way, and then the year 2000, and we were shooting it in, I think, 1999, just as we didn't know whether Y2K was going to happen, whether the paradigm shift was going to happen then or right. later. But certainly 2001, after 9-11, there was a paradigm shift and the world was suddenly different. And the order was being reassessed and continues to be. And certainly this, this past year has been the biggest check since. But uh, I know he, he, he felt Chekhov was that. And he, we shot it, he shot it deliberately at the turn of the century because it was written for the turn of the century before. Yeah, of course. And moving sort of shortly after that into, into 24, and I'd just done this movie Time Code with Figgis, uh, did you ever see that? I've seen it. Actually, I haven't seen it since it came out, but it's uh, it's shot in real time, uh, and there's four different screens. Yeah, and sort of go from the four-screen image to straight into 24. and, and Oh, which also uses sort of multi-paneled. Yeah, and the, the division of the screen and the sort of this desire that seemed to be with 2001, it was time code 2000, and then we were shooting 24 in 2001, this a desire to rethink the structures that were feeling worn out and and i certainly feel that now and that's one of the major modus operandi behind moving our base of operations to maine mm-hmm. is want to create a, a set and setting for great actors and filmmakers to come to think outside the box and off the grid for a little bit, because there's something about the treadmill of uh, of the business that says, oh, "Okay, we just got to keep this thing going." We got, and so we better do it the way that everybody's been doing it. So that's because we know that works, and that's going to keep working. And there's a desperation because people have to maintain their expensive lifestyles that they invariably fall into once they're there. Keeping up with the Joneses, going to school with the Joneses. Uh, living in a neighborhood that has proximity to the Joneses and then having to keep take commercial work that will uh, pay the mortgage and all the schools and everything else. And it becomes this breathless pursuit of, you know, the Euroboro chasing its tail. And for us, it felt really healthy to get off the grid and create and we're putting finishing touches and even getting an in down the street to accommodate the crew and the day players um, to film at, at, uh, at the farm and people that we've touched on 
to come and let's just think if what's the story we want to tell? How do we want to tell it? What would be an exciting new way to tell a story? And know that there is certainly, you know, despite the, the new Goliaths of Netflix and Amazon, there will be a way, there'll, there'll be a channel, there'll be some place that people want to see great content with actors they've seen in a lot of great things before doing something different. Um, and so it's been, I've been masterminded. You sit on enough sets where you, they're doing things the same old way. Right. And hemorrhaging a lot of money in the process of doing that. Let's, let's, let's rethink this. And even if it's just like a workshop, like just a place where people can come to just workshop an idea and put it like an architect's model on film, mm-hmm. an interesting environment. 24 is an interesting piece of work um, because you, you come off as, as, well, everyone on the show's got all sorts of dark secrets. How much did you know going ahead? Like how many episodes ahead had they warned you of like, oh, your character knows this, your character knows this, or were you just kind of left to your own devices? Yeah, we didn't know. They didn't know. And as soon as 9-11 hit, everything was up for grabs in terms of right. having on your feet and change and alter the plot lines that had been set in motion. So, and there was a lot of the scripts that, I think because uh, Stephen Hopkins, the director and Kiefer, and just myself um, in the beginning thought, well, apropos the conversation we had regarding Sid and Nancy, this is what they've written. How would a person say it? Mm. How would a person in this situation actually say it? And so you start to break it down a little bit and crumple it up and scatter some leaves over the plot points as they're being pulled by the cables. And, uh, that became something that the writers saw that we had the ability to do and the willingness to do. And so they, as they're thinking on their feet, restructuring it afforded them a little bit of leeway, like, okay, so when they shoot it, they're going to, they're going to tighten up. They're going to, basically I, I got to the point where they relied on me to translate techno terminology into human speak. <laughs> I had a ball doing it. And, you know, there are times when they had very specific things they wanted hit. And I remember asking Joel at one point, so I'm just to be clear, I'm just being a prick now to be a prick. <laughs> I delight in being an asshole. Um, is that what I'm getting? Because I, I don't see, it seems so gratuitous that I would make that snarky comment to his wife that I don't even know upon meeting her. Why would, who would do that? And he said, we have one golden rule on this show. Never bore. All right. Okay. I got you. I thought I might try charming her instead okay. of being a dick. Then I, <laughs> charming is sometimes just as, as, as entertaining as dickishness is. And I think we lose an audience if they come to not believe in us in our dimensionality uh, or lack thereof. But the beautiful thing is that, I mean, as much as a prick as that character is, he gets a hero's death. Yeah. And, and that was partly because uh, of my consistent pushing back and then and and the upsetting of expectation because that was one of the things Joel and I uh, discussed and discovered and he allowed me that freedom um, to on occasion to to do my little rewrites that would uh, with the premise that you never bore but and I and I my argument is that as long as we're upsetting expectation if, I, if they come to expect me to just make asshole remarks then that's all then they're not going to be surprised when I do but if we can keep this sense of direct misdirect mm-hmm. allow me to, and it was, it was my improvisation and a little gravitas and a little dry wit that I added 
to the pilot character that was just a guest star that made them make him into a recurring character because that was going to be just a one-off. Right. And then they knew I wasn't doing TV series and they knew I would be tempted to sign up as a regular. And Joel's pitch to me was, um, so what if, I know you don't want to do a series, but what if you become a regular for one year and we have you inhale airborne plutonium in the first or second episode and you have 24 hours to live before you meet your demand? And that's a season. And then you have, and then I'm thinking, he says, that'll give you a chance to show some redemption. You'll, you, know, you try and make up for a life misspent. And I thought, oh my God, that is fucking brilliant. Yeah. Yes, I will sign up for that. In a heartbeat. Yeah. And I'm in love with Sarah Clark who's playing Nina Myers. And- win, win. I mean, to get you, find yourself uh, a role that is instantly dimensionalized and and uh, get a hot wife. I mean, that's the ball game. I thought I was going to have to go back to New York. I was beginning to lose faith in Los Angeles. <laughs> I don't want to keep you too much longer, but uh, I'm looking at your your career and, and doing my my the Xander Berkeley Festival we've been running in this house over the past couple of weeks, which has been delightful. Do you have a favorite death scene, Xander? Because you've died on screen a lot. <laughs> well, this is the year that is the 20th anniversary of, of 24, where I go down and I, I save Los Angeles. I, I, I turn the shit heel into a hero and and save all of Los Angeles from nuclear holocaust by taking that bomb out into the desert somehow. And that's having its 20th year anniversary. As you mentioned, Mommy Dearest is having its 40th, but the one that's having its 30th... Is T2. Ba-da-boom. That has to be one of the great death scenes ever put on film. I'm sorry. It still looks great. You know, it's funny. You you go back and you watch movie because remember at the time, you know, I, what was it like the first time you saw that movie with the finished special effects? Because those special effects were beyond state of the art for 1991. Was it just otherworldly to to watch that movie? But then, did you see it with an audience first? Yeah, um, yeah. I think for some reason I'm trying to remember what the premiere was. No, I saw it in the premiere, and then Robert Patrick and I were friends before that. And we both went with our girlfriends to the opening night at the uh, Cinerama Dome. Oh, my God. We made an arrangement in advance so that we could sneak into the very back, the four of us, and just sit there with popcorn and watch with a crowd. And, yeah. But the the special effects were practical to a great extent. There's only, I understand what they said, there's only 40 CGI e- events in that film. So that shot with the silver thing going through your mouth, that's an actual silver thing. Yeah, I had an actual silver thing for two weeks to practice sword swallowing up. Yikes. Fit uh, the back of my head to have a, a, a celastic leather sort of thing that would press up against the, right up against the flat of my neck and then the off-camera side of my head have a retraction pulley that would pull a blade this way to make it going that way. Right. And they had to have the blade going in my mouth far enough down my mouth. I'm a guy that chokes on toothbrushes. So this was a lot. So like having a blade down there and then they they wanted to split, um, they they ran a tube down the backside, the the non-camera side of the blade with milk and blood. (laughs) Right, of course. And it would divide at the very back. And they had Stan Winston, the great Stan Winston, had forgotten to take the kitchen counter into account when pinning me to the cupboard. 
So it's not a straight slide down. Not a straight slide down. It's I have to do a back bend for three hours while they match the glint with the uh. blade going out of the back of the head into the mouth. And then another four hours to five hours on the ground once I've been slumped down. And, and uh, because I couldn't, and Jim made it clear that if you move a muscle in any of these sequences, when we call cut, you cannot move. Mm. You cannot move. If you move a muscle, it'll show up and you'll fuck the whole thing up. Mm. Okay. So there I am and in this little pool of milk and blood that he personally keeps swirling as it gets absorbed into my jeans. The, the sliding glass door is open. The cable is running to keep the whole generator thing powered up um, for the lights and the cameras. And um, it's ice cold air just coming in. And I'm just lying there slumped with my neck against the cabinet dripping blood. And um, yeah, and for the whole time, Jeanette um, Goldstein, who plays my wife, Janelle, um, it goes from having the arm through my mouth to the straight up to the down and then the silver guy coming in stunt man in a silver suit and mm -hmm. exiting all of them exiting frame. And then RP Robert Patrick coming in the cops uniform and then doing the final exit out of frame. But all of those sequences, all of those takes and all of the time in between calling cut before action again, I'm just for four to five hours, just pinned. And it's 1991, so you can't scroll on your phone. <laughs> no, there's no scroll. There's no movement. Uh, uh. So I was just there like a piece of hot set furniture. <laughs> the gruesomeness of that demise is, 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 is well earned on all fronts. And, uh, but I do have about 50, and I do have a death reel, I think, somewhere on, on the YouTubes. That's glorious. I found I found a, a really comprehensive acting reel that was about eight minutes long. It was fantastic. I did not find the death reel. You're a really accomplished painter and sculptor, um, and I, I really I really love your portraiture uh, a lot. Uh, are you a Lucian Freud fan? Oh, of course, yeah. Um, how, if at all, does being a painter affect your acting? How does being, or actually more likely, how does being an actor affect your painting? Well, the idea of psychological studies and characters and what's going on inside their head with the, the minutia of facial expressions reflecting it. And um, in general, it was always my companion on a film set where I'd say be playing the, the shit heel and I don't have to go to work every day like the good guys do. <laughs> I'm on location oftentimes in countries that didn't speak English because I was drawn to taking films for travel. So I always had, I would always go to the art store that I would find first day and, and uh, I always have drawing materials so I could go out into cafes and be kept company by that activity. And uh, my first love of the whole thing is studying minutia of human behavior and people in, in diurnal activities and and so you're you're becoming a student of that every time you go into a cafe or into a bar or anywhere that you can sit or park and just get away with stealing looks and anytime i always had to deal with myself that anytime i got caught by someone i would give them the drawing too oh wow and uh but if i could get away with 
not getting caught, I'd keep them and I still have them and I reference them because you can write down little notes on the side of mannerisms, what they wore, the things they said. So it's, it's always been a cataloging, a data base for me of human behavior and uh, to draw on as an actor. But then as an actor later, you know, and I, I just was working on these, these two clay heads uh, sculptures. And you posted them on Instagram. They're great. They look awesome. Just this past week, and somebody mentioned what I was thinking of doing with them, which is to do a pixelation and to put different voices or to get friends to help me voice mm -hmm. them interacting. Um, and that's one of the things I, I really want to play with at the, at the in, our, in our little magic box in the 1820s dairy barn, <laughs> mini film studio in there. And the, like, you've done a lot of voice work too, right? My voice work has spiked since I've been doing more on camera work. Yeah, well, because it's people like yourself that I, I, I really am, you know, not just working with as actors, because you bring the good vibe, the endorphins and, and the intelligence and the stagecraft and the ability to be simple and real as well. That combination is exactly what I'm looking for for when we do some stuff. And among that is, um, you know, a new approach to animation with claymation and being able to actually voice to watch these things being manipulated and bring a bunch of sculptor friends in to help work the lips and stuff like that to find the voices that would come out of them and, and do really freaking cool surrealist stuff. That's fantastic. That's really exciting. Uh, th there's something about the Pixar and the, and the predictability of the animation that's leaves me a little, uh, I'm a little over it. I think they're amazing at what they do. I just want to see them keep doing the same thing over and over. I want to, I want to see the plasticity of the medium and the possibilities of the medium explored more. Since you're talking about all these these actors that you you know and love, and I, since you've been a, a a cinephile with your dad for years, were there like supporting guys? And actually, let's make it even more specific. Were there bad guys that you watched growing up that you were like, oh, that guy's great? Why don't we see more of him? Were there were there were there movie villains and actors who tend to do that? that you watched growing up that really excited you? Well, yeah, of course. And you know, whether it was in all these foreign films, my father was really, and, and this is where we're all trying to sort of adhere to the person we admire most the critical opinions of. Oftentimes, if we're lucky, we got a cool father. Um, his eye, eye on the ensemble that a lot of the great foreign film directors would use the same actors over and over in different films and and you'd see them coming in as different kinds of bad guys in different films. And, and you know, Bogart was a bad guy before he started playing good guys, but then in all the Bogart films, you see these different characters. And my father was just always drawn to the obscure, the the minimalist performance, the, the complete transformation and, uh, so I was, there were a million of them, so many that I can't even name. Some of the, the crazy sort of in, in early foreign films, whether it's Charles Lawton or, or Sidney Greenstreet or, or um, Peter Lorre or these different ones, and certainly all the early Gothic horror films, just seeing what Lon Chaney and Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, uh, yeah. And um, just the, 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 the ability to transform and... I, I, I sort of avoided doing horror films throughout my career. I didn't want to get the, the slasher splash on me. Mm -hmm. I, I did a couple of smart art films like Candyman, which 
really kind of sophisticated for the genre. Yeah. But I'm kind of really drawn. I, I know I have a great monster in me. But mm. I want to do it in the old school of, like, you know, Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney in particular did, bringing such pathos and Charles Lawton, the punchback, um, yeah. to be able to make, to break your heart at the same time as terrifying you at any given moment, like Frankenstein does. And, and so I, I, I want to come up with something like that. Do you, I, I want to talk for a moment about Sidney Greenstreet, who you just mentioned, um, who has that incredible streak in the early 40s of, uh, of Maltese Falcon and he's in Casablanca. And those are his first two films, unless I'm terribly mistaken. He breaks into the business, into film anyway, at like the age of 60. He's like this fresh new face, you know, in those movies. And uh, there was something so interesting about that guy. I watch, um, I go back to Malfi, I go back to both Malfi's fucking Casablanca quite a bit, even though they're, they're sort of cliche classic movies. They're cliches because they're really fucking good. But what is it about that guy that is so interesting to, to, I mean, aside from that incredible voice? Well, it's just, it's an individual's presence. It's a gravitas that comes from, you know, you see like Sterling Hayden in Godfather. And yeah. he'd, played, he'd played these these leading men, but he'd obviously lived a, a rough, tough, real fucking life in there. And Coppola had the great wisdom to bring him in, bad cop, yeah. you know, that just is so scary. It's like Lee J. Cobb in On the Waterfront. Mm. Um, that like that's a performance of a bad guy that like I just remember thinking like, oh my god, that's insane. He's just got so much presence, and, yeah. And you and and there's something, yeah. And that that's what makes a story exciting. That you need that in a in a story to to have it be compelling. You know, uh, you know. I, I I was lucky enough to work with some of my my heroes, like from the seventies, like uh you know to to work with Duval is a is a great gift and you know him and apocalypse now that's a scary character but it's interesting because he dimensionalizes it by being because he's got really i won't call them jokes but they're the few moments of humor in apocalypse now come from Robert Duval who is coming 3 years after the completely humorless Tom Hagen uh to do this, I mean, it's one of those things where if he wasn't famous, you wouldn't really understand that it was the same guy. Yeah, no, and but that's the the transformation, and that's the the dimensionality and the and the the high road to me. The bar was set that high that just is like you know whatever that that you can get your laughs still be real, but because you're being real mm -hmm. and you're committed a hundred percent to that choice, rather yeah. than commenting on it and, and a lot of times people play bad guys there's a desire to make them likable and make them appealing and make them sexy and all this other stuff and i made a little hippie baby hippie vow to myself in the in the late 70s after seeing ironically the brilliant film taxi driver because it gave me the willies thinking you could play a guy that's a serial killer or something like that and do something that's just so cool that somebody's going to want to go out there and be just like you. Yeah. You weren't really careful. And I always felt that would be like a black mark on your Akashic file that you would have to answer for that down the line. And 
so I, I always made a little thing of like, if I'm going to hold a gun, if I'm going to brandish a gun, if I'm going to be really undo horrible things, I want to create negative associations. And so I willingly sacrificed my vanity to the playing of various characters along the way, knowing that that would sabotage fame and opportunity because people would have a negative association and they would cross it over. And I even had friends of mine who directed saying, yeah, but I can't cast you in that part because we have to like that guy. And I'm like, we've been friends for 25 years. You like me. <laughs> but I mean, on the upside, you have never, as far as I know, inspired anyone to take a shot at the president. That's a feather in your cap. There you go. And, and now when, I, when, it, when and if I do get to continue to play the odd, like in The Maestro or something like that, where I'm given the opportunity to play a decent, sweet guy, it'll be like having a fresh face, a new, like Sterling, like, a, like Sidney Greenstein, and a new old face. Were there parts that got away from you that, and not even have to be close calls, but ones were like, ah, oh, there's an interesting world where I'm actually playing that part. Yeah, there's only one that really sticks in my craw. Um, because it would have been such a beautiful experience, I think. Um, I had a, an hour-long meeting with Bertolucci for The Sheltering Sky. For which part? Malkovich. Oh, Malkovich, of course. Just done, you know, he had just done The Last Emperor and had won all the awards and didn't need a big movie star. He was the star. Yeah. So whatever he did next, and he, he already had Deborah Winger, um, and I in place for that part. And I, we weren't given a script, we were given Paul Bowles novel, um, The Sheltering Sky, and then I had a meeting and it was at the Chateau Marmont, the son in his room, not all directors, when they bring you to their hotel room or up to shady business, sometimes it's just a beautiful suite <laughs> and have a, a conversation one-on-one. -on -one. And uh, that conversation was one that I'll always be grateful for. Even I didn't get the film. I saw in his eyes that he knew I was the right guy for the part. I looked exactly like Paul Bowles at that particular point. That there was a Paul Bowles who speaks the last line in the film, if if memory serves. And yeah, you're right. You do look like Paul Bowles a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, that's the we talked about existentialism being the zeitgeist of that time after the war versus materialism, which was all ready in the 80s 90s so apparently the the and still is the the thrust of our time um and we talked about the camera's ability to see every moment of of anticipation that he learned with working with brando that they just had to be in the moment and shoot the rehearsal and make it make it happen live on camera and and be right there in that each moment and and I was so excited by that way of working and and that was my ideal and this character was so perfect and I think he you know Malkovich I've loved a lot of what he's done and a million other things but partly because I I'd, I'd been so seriously considered for this that I couldn't help but have my heart broken that he seemed outside of it commenting on it interesting I see that and I, and I think that the whole experience that Bowles had in Northern Africa after the war, in that what he went into was being in it. He was in it. And I would have yeah. been in it with Deborah Winger. And I think the two of us would have had a great chemistry at that time. And, and, uh, and we would have given him what he needed to see on film in, in that story unfolding. And I think 
the film was, I have the arrogance to believe that's the one I could have made a great film and might have made a bigger name out of me. But my mother warned me about fame, from, just like she warned me about getting too rich before I ever left the East Coast. Money's the only problem if you have too much or too little of it. You know that, don't you? Well, I, I knew only about the latter, mother never having experienced the former. <laughs> Mark my words. And she said, and with regard to fame, you just be careful what you ask for because you may just get it. And then what? Then what? And that, those two admonitions put the terror into my bones. And I told that story since because it's not, neither of those are stories that are told, I think, often enough. I agree. Going after the golden carrot so desperately that they forget to consider the consequences of should they get it, what then? And so I'm sort of happy to be still like a normal guy, just able to study people instead of having everybody study me. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think you've got a really great, uh, arc, a really enviable career. And I don't know that 10 years after that, I would have wanted to see, uh, being Xander Berkeley. You know, I feel like, uh, I, I feel like Xander Berkeley's got, it got his own thing going on. And, uh, I, I am old. I didn't think I could become a bigger fan, but this last hour has done it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with, with little me. Oh, and please come on out to Maine, mister, won't you? Cannot wait. Cannot wait. Stop doing the southern accent. You're very far north. And that is an episode wrap on Xander Berkeley. You can follow him on Twitter at Xander Berkeley. And over on Instagram, he's at Xander Original. And that's where he posts all of his painting and sculpture. Strongly recommend. Very good follow. Forever. <laughs> Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? Mm-hmm.